0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today is our October edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring monthly series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader challenges facing our society. Last month, we discussed wealth and income inequality. An important cause and remedy for inequality is education. And the COVID-19 pandemic we're living through is having all sorts of interesting and alarming effects on educational outcomes. So today, we'll try to give you the state of play, as we know it, when it comes to the effect of the pandemic on education. Bryce, how's it going today? Uh, good, although the fact that we're still talking
1: about the pandemic is somewhat depressing.
0: But uh, Yeah, well, let's just sort of set that one aside because we're in it and we're planning to talk about it. So anyway, so let's just walk listeners through the highlights and, well, maybe the lowlights of how COVID has affected education in general.
1: So obviously, when the pandemic first hit and everybody got sent home, there was not a ton of learning that took place no. during that period. Uh, the studies that we have uh, in a variety of countries, uh, rich and poor, found, yeah, that there, on average there was
0: basically no learning. That and that's not a huge surprise no. at all. You shut down the schools, you send the kids home, you cobble together some form of you know online instruction. To the extent learning was happening, it was probably happening in the better resourced areas, but in general, it's pretty bad. Yeah.
1: And so then uh, we get through to a full school year where we have a whole bunch of different modes of learning going on. This is like an
0: economist's dream.
1: It is, although it's somewhat disappointing that there hasn't been better data collection. They're starting to do a better job of trying to piece it together ex post of Mm -hmm. what each district was doing so that then we can map it to various learning outcomes and basically say, oh, here was the effect of X, Y and Z on learning. But just in general, even from before the pandemic and what we've learned through the pandemic is regular schooling is better for the most people than all these kind of amalgams. It's not to say that some individuals don't thrive in these environments, because sure. they do, but for... And we say
0: regular school,
1: it's a traditional, Traditional, in-person, five-day-a-week schooling, okay. right? So, you know, we know that that is a relatively effective model of educating young
0: people. Sure.
1: You know, so some of the studies, basically, so one of the studies that I can recall... So there's these test companies, right? mm-hmm. So one of the ones, which is what we use at the school that my kids go to, they give kind of these computer-assisted tests yeah. three times a year, and they're nationally normed to a, nor- a distribution that exists before the pandemic. So they were able to say, okay, well, amongst the kids who took tests in the school year 2020, 2021, 20, 20, 20, where did they fall within this pre-pandemic right. distribution? And they basically found that it wasn't huge, but it was down six to 10% to percentile points, Okay. right? You know, and that varies, you know, as you move into other parts of the globe, right, it's even, it's much worse. And, you know, it depends on what district you're in and what type, you know, so there's, you know, kind of going back to the link to inequality, it's only increasing the inequality in our educational outcomes, right? So basically, if you are in some form of disadvantaged population in a country or a district or a community, you're much more likely to show worse outcomes through this, then, you know, and in fact, one of my friends who's one of the people who writes these papers, right, I'm on a call with him a few weeks ago, he was even joking, he's like, look, it doesn't, what, it doesn't matter what my kids do, they'll be fine. But, you know, when you're talking about other parts of the population sure. where there isn't as much at home supplement, if the school isn't there or isn't doing as much as it could, those are where we're most concerned about worse outcomes which then linking back to inequality over the long term may actually just exacerbate inequality because we've you know we're not keeping up in that race with between education and technology sure. that we talked about last time.
0: And and do we know, you know, within those disadvantaged groups, like what different sorts of modalities were employed and, and, and the effects of those modalities? Have we been able to get that granular yet?
1: Yeah, in some places, yes. Even where in person schooling was an option Frequently, it was minority parents, more disadvantaged parents, who were the most likely to opt out.
0: Yeah, that study out of Michigan, um, Michigan you sent me yeah. a, said that, that, yeah, they were more likely to opt for The online homeschool uh, approach. And so, but there's a few different things happening. There's like schools, public schools are switching to some form of remote. Public schools are doing some hybrid of in-person. And then there's families that are opting for homeschool and then families that are putting their children children in private schools.
1: And families just delaying putting kids in school at all, right? So the biggest effects that we saw in enrollment were in kindergarten. I think nationally we're missing like 10 million kindergartners Missing.
0: Last year. Just off the rolls. Just
1: did not show up in any form of enrolled school. And I think some of that's coming back this year. They're just basically, they just got redshirted in they some sat sense, out, right? yeah. They just, they just sat out for a year and now... If I recall correctly, like the kindergarten classes in many school districts this year are enormous. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Whereas the first grade classes are somewhat small. Which probably, yeah, that'll have all kinds of effects as those, as that cohort moves through the system, that cohort will probably be much more competitive than the previous cohort, presumably if, if they catch up, I suppose. Yeah. No. Um, class
1: size matters. Cohort size matters. It, you know, it, it affects, you know, and, and, and the age distribution of kids in the class matters. Yeah, not only uh, just
0: in terms of their educational horsepower or their just sort of what they're ready for cognitively, but non-cognitively, too. Like, there's the social interactions between just the difference between a five- and a six-year-old is enormous, or can be enormous. It
1: can be enormous, right? You know, I mean, I have a first grader. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, you can see the difference between the kids who are kind of September birthdays and the kids who are June birthdays that are both in the same class. Right. Yeah, there's a difference because at that age you're talking about like almost 20% difference in, you know, life experience.
0: Okay, so we know about this missing cohort of kindergartners. We know about some of the other modalities and the effects on very in various populations. What other pieces of the puzzle do we need?
1: Okay, so there's a couple other things that COVID has done. First, there's a series that tracks like, they ask parents on a regular basis about misbehavior and kind of anxiety amongst their oh, kids, okay. right? And so caregivers reporting um, how much the phrase fussy or defiant fits their child's behavior in the last week. Pre-pandemic, about a third of parents said that about their kids kind of youngest kids. Yeah. And since the pandemic started, it has been steady at 50%. Yeah, that makes sense. And if you ask- I'm probably well above 50% (laughs) of myself. I don't know about you. Uh, It's gone through phases. And the other other question they ask is uh, how much the phrase too fearful or anxious fits their child's behavior. And pre-pandemic, that was like 13, 14%, and it's been above 20% steadily since. So, you know, there's these kind of social-emotional issues that we're seeing in some data and so it's worth asking okay well what's going on with that now a small part and this isn't huge but it's still a big number if you think about it right so i think a study came out this week which suggested that 175,000 kids have lost at least one of their primary caregivers due to covid so we've got a non It's basically one out of every four death COVID deaths likely is leaving behind a minor child Mm -hmm. so you know we've got that which is it's small within the big giant
0: population but it's a lot of kids but it's a lot of kids and it's a big shock and when Um, you're i mean if thinking about it from the perspective of our education system you've got a teacher in a classroom with somewhere between 20 and 30 students and you know from the perspective of a teacher it's in a small classroom, you can give somebody a lot of attention, but if you have to spread your attention across 20 to 30 students with COVID, you're being asked to do all this other stuff too. It's going to be really hard to make sure those sorts of kids aren't getting left behind.
1: Yeah. So there's, you know, there's the direct COVID death, but then, you know, that's, that's the deaths, right? Now we've got the kids who've got parents who've been hospitalized and are maybe dealing with long COVID. You know, I mean, it, we, it, it grows into a still small but again, as you point out, even if it's just a handful of kids spread across a cohort within an elementary school, you already had all the traditional issues going on. Right now, you've got these issues. You've got the other elevated ones we just talked about. That's just everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and then and kind of lurking behind all of this is that we just, we've just interrupted some, some of our traditional ways of developing social emotional skills. Like, you know, I know lots of kids who were basically locked down for a year. Right. They did not see friends. Yeah. Right. They saw them on Zoom screens or FaceTime calls, but they weren't doing basketball and soccer and dancing and the art camp or you know all that kind of stuff. We're kind of we don't know what happens when you take that out at different ages. And we're going to we're going to learn we're about learn. that. Yeah. But, you know, so we've got just got a host of of issues related to not just the cognitive skills that we see in test scores, but also this interrupted social-emotional development that we know actually, honestly, if you're putting a horse race together in terms of what do I care more about, I think the evidence is increasingly supporting that that social-emotional development. If you can get that part right, you're going to see a kid who's going to go farther in school and do better in the job market and earn more long-term than if we just were worried about how do we mitigate the, you know math and reading issues
0: okay so break that down for a second because that might have just buzzed through some of the parents listening parents and i'm one of them i focus a ton on like do your homework you know have you done your reading have you done your math All that sort of stuff. And it's at the expense often of hanging out with your friends and doing other social stuff. So, yeah. But
1: but you're doing two things there, right? So, one thing is that they're doing their math and their reading. Correct. Right. I don't know if that's quite correct. But, you know, we're trying. But there's also the you're trying to help them develop the skills to regulate themselves mm. so that they can do it on their own, right? Yeah, so here,
0: prioritize their time. Yep. So
1: so let's talk about what we know about, you know, so we're talking about schools largely, education systems. Yep. So what do we know about how schools works and how do we know that is also worth asking, right? So going to the very earliest ages, right, we've done a variety of randomized trials, right, where we randomly put kids into things like Head Start, the Perry Preschool team, yep. the ABC program. Uh, these are all the studies that were... People got randomly put in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So we were able to say, where are they now, mm-hmm. right, as adults? And we know that the kids that got randomly put into these programs do much better than the kids that were in the pool, the control group that did not. It wasn't because they had necessarily always had better test scores. So we think a lot of that has to do with they learned social, emotional, soft, yeah. cognitive, what non-cognitive, whatever skills you want Something to
0: have Something other than math and reading. Yeah. At those ages, which allows them to thrive. Okay. Right? So and when, I, when you're measuring the thriving down the road, is it, it's more than just income. Yeah. It's crime and uh, educational attainment. I just want to make sure listeners aren't d- d- just sort of dismissing the economist's study of thriving. That's right. No, it's, you know, we're, we're trying to use a broad-based
1: measure of, and some of this is even self-reported. You know well-being, well being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know that's preschool. So when we move into you know elementary school, kind of similar things, right? So one of the big studies, again, a randomized experiment in the '80s, Tennessee implemented this small class size it was called the STAR experiment, mm-hmm. and it showed immediately big increases in test scores. Remember, it's like oh, small class sizes matter. Then we looked at their the kids who participated in the experiment in high school. And it was like. Uh, there's not much here anymore, right? Then we followed it up again with their 27, 28, higher degrees of educational attainment, higher earnings, you know, so it kind of came back full circle. Again, it's like, well, what's going on? Something other than what we're measuring on test scores showed up, right? And then we, you know, a lot of, a lot of what economists do in education is what we call value-added modeling. Uh-huh. So basically, you're trying to figure out what the, if I went to this teacher or this school, how much learning should I expect, right? And we know that, that that learning, cognitive learning, improved test scores, we've, again, we've matched that to people long-term, and it it does seem to matter. But several studies came out in the last couple of years, which also tried to do that value added on non-cognitive skills, right? Okay. Students over time reporting things about their well being, their own feelings of their social skills, and then match to like school disciplinary records. So we can say, oh, look, you got this teacher versus that teacher. The students in this class, when we look at them going forward, they get in trouble less. They report greater feelings of well-being. And we're like, okay, well, there's clearly a teacher effect on the non-cognitive skills. And interestingly, they're not actually strongly correlated with the teachers who are good at generating cognitive skills.
0: Okay, so meaning that a teacher who is good at cultivating the non-cognitive skills is not necessarily The one who's getting the best test scores. Right, okay. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Cameron Lawrence, and you're listening to A New Angle. Hey, folks. The University of Montana will be hosting this year's first Presidential Lecture Series event on November 4th at 6 p.m. on Zoom, Visit www.umt.edu president to register for the Zoom link and to hear from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with economist Bryce Ward about the effects of COVID-19 on educational outcomes. We have a system in which the one who's getting the best test scores is often the one who's identified as the best teacher. And you know,
1: interestingly, again, this was a study that was looked at ninth graders, um, ninth grade teachers, and in terms of completing high school graduation, if you're picking between having a one standard deviation better teacher on, either, on one of those two metrics, you absolutely want the teacher who was the better one at the non-cognitive skills.
0: So have you developed your own sort of questionnaire for how to identify these teachers?
1: That's such an interesting question. No, well, I'm, I'm curious. There's an, a totally separate paper on social skills yeah. that I would be curious if the measure of social skills they used actually correlates with this. Well, in fact, somebody should do this study because the measure they use is a paper by a guy named David Deming at Harvard. Basically, what they looked at, it looked at team performance. And what they found was they could identify people who were the glue that made the team work better, right? And if you were to basically take and add this person to a team, it was in effect like increasing the IQ level of the the team by a standard deviation. Wow. So who were these people, right? What was the test they used to identify them? It's a really cool test. You can go online and take it. You give people pictures of eyes. And ask them to tell you what the emotion in the eye is. Interesting, right? Yeah. People who are good at reading facial expressions, particularly people's eyes. Now, whether or not that's the causal mechanism or just the way that we found to identify it, up in the air. Sure. But that was what they found. They they had a whole, but they had personality. They had all this. Other thing. The thing that was able to predict.
0: Yeah. The people who were good is the the eye reading test. And Talk right? about one thing that's been so much harder to do with COVID. Like you can't. It's very hard to do in Zoom. Yeah.
1: yeah. So this so, is this is part of the concern. Exactly. Right. So there's the eye reading thing, and then another again a separate study, which again isn't about education. Actually, it was about teachers. So there was a teacher training um, that I actually think a friend of mine implemented in South Africa, and they did it randomly with a control group, an online only arm, and a in person arm, mm-hmm. both online and in person they worked in that they the teachers got better at their jobs right but the people that were in person got a lot better right and the mechanism that appeared because the material was all the same sure right so the information being delivered to you is identical yep right so the thing that they found that was different was that the in-person arm increased motivation to pay attention, yeah. to learn, yep. to engage, right?
0: That's what, that's so what we've me lost. me speaking to a class of students live, the students feel some motivation to pay attention that they don't feel if it's the same students watching a video of me.
1: Well, we're, we're, we're extrapolating a little bit, so yeah, think, yeah, about, of, think of it as office hours.
0: Yep. Right? Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, a student in office hours where you're engaged and you can feel the energy in the room. Yeah. And you, you know, I can't alt tab into my browser when I, you know, get in a notification sure. or whatever it is. I'm there. I'm engaged. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, yeah, online, it's easy to be distracted. 100%. You know, and particularly once you move from an individual to a small group or to a class, I mean, you know, we've all been in the Zoom world now. The amount that I pay attention if I don't need to on a Zoom meeting is way less than when I was like daydreaming, right? Like, you know, I could daydream, sure. Yeah. But like I could passively pay a lot more attention because I didn't have literally any piece of information that I wanted to go look up at my on my hundred percent. Right? Yeah. So the point is that we we know that school works both because it's developing these important cognitive skills, and we know that those are important. I've been mentioned that we've studied again. That's Raj Chetty and yep. Jonah Rockoff. You know, they did this long term study of teacher value-added models and, you know, income. But we have these new papers by a guy named Karabu Jackson looking at these non-cognitive value-added and long-term outcomes. So we know both are important, and we know that both have been interrupted. The The test score piece, because we're tracking it all the time, we have a better sense of what we've lost. Sure. We know it's unequal. We know it's, you know, moderately sized. That how much we've lost in the social-emotional, mm-hmm. that's that's harder and it's also harder because it's look if I if I can see that you're behind in test scores, yeah, remediating you can that immediately observe is, it and do something is you know we know look it requires resources to remediate, and the question is is whether those resources will be made available to those who need it. But we know how to remediate it, right? Like you know if my kid gets behind in reading, oh yeah, well we've been slacking and not making you do your reading or whatever it is, so now we're going to amp it up, and yeah. you'll get caught back up. We know less about the magic of what it is that actually is happening. Again, yeah. we, like, yeah, we've now got evidence that there are teacher effects and there are school effects. There's also a paper that looks at school effects on this. Interestingly, adding into this, uh, same, same author, Karabu Jackson, and well, main author and then some of the other co- co-authors, they actually took advantage of school choice in Barbados, right? And they actually mm. found that parents wanted to send their kids to the schools that were popular didn't actually have an effect on test scores. But long-term, they were having an effect on educational outcomes, meaning that parents were effectively selecting schools because they thought they were generating effects in these non-cognitive areas. Sure. So again, more evidence that this stuff is important and people are actually kind of aware of it, but we just don't, the actual recipe of it is hard, right? Just it's take a simple trait like resilience, yeah. right? which is a trait that people think, yeah, I think what my, I want my kid to be resilient. But you know, I was just reading an article in the New York Times parenting thing just this week talking about resilience and how the increasingly the idea is that resilience itself isn't a trait. It's a network of other traits, right? Yeah. You know, and this is what happens when we kind of get into these social skills. There's just, it's easy to measure can you do a math problem? Yeah, test scores. Can you read a sentence? Right. But when it comes to even naming, these non-cognitive... This is why they're frequently called soft skills, which is a term that I hate. Essential um, skills. Is essential we've skills. rebranded them here right. at the
0: College of Business yeah. as essential skills. They're
1: essential skills. And they are... The market is telling us that they're essential, mm-hmm. right? We talked about this, I think, last time, where it yeah. was, you know, social skills married with analytical skills. That's what's... that's Those are the jobs that have seen the most wage growth uh, over the past 30 40 years mm-hmm. and will continue to with and automation and all these other forces they are is the, they are essential you will work with other people mm-hmm. most jobs entail working with other people in some form of group context which means that people who are good at navigating persuading motivating they're going to be very successful and you know the big question to me about the long term effects of covid on kids or just society in general, to be honest, like we were talking about this beforehand. We both feel like we've lost social skills, yes, yeah. like particularly with Delta, right? I felt like I was coming back out of it, right? In the spring, early summer. And then as Delta is kind of just start pulling back a little bit, because particularly with, you know, with somebody who has kids who's not vaccinated, I'm not actually super concerned about them getting sick. I just don't want to have to quarantine with them for ten days. The disruption, you know, the dis- that it would
0: cause, co- that it causes. I mean, we've. I'm sure many listeners have been through this too, like just living through either being sick yourself or having a sick family member, or just the simple nuisance of getting that close contact notification from your kid's school is is is, is a heavy lift. Yeah, a guy named Matt Vols who lives in Helena but writes
1: for Kaiser uh-huh. um, Health News. Um, he wrote a very personal essay published this week about the four quarantines. He's gone through with Gosh. his kids yeah. because of either, well, they got sick and they're waiting for the test results. And so, well, you're, it's five days to get the test results. And so you, you're, you're stuck inside and now you've got the siblings who are also close contacts of those, right. you know, and, you know, and it's just like, you got two parents trying to work and, you know, it's terrifying. I haven't had to go through it yet, fortunately, but it certainly is, you know, getting back to why I started talking about it, it's affected how I'm interacting with the world as cases have now, again, they're in Missoula, they're high as they've ever been. And, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, we got rid of the fear about my own health and, you know, maybe the health of the older people that are in my social network. You know, it's not that they've gone to zero, but they've been mitigated by the vaccine. But the fact that there's still, you know, that miserable lockdown that we all went through, lockdown in March of 2020, That's still a real thing for parents.
0: It is. And
1: that's terrifying. And
0: you can sort of randomly get your life snapped back into it in a world where, you know, other people's lives aren't snapped back into that. Your employer isn't necessarily in that mode. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. You know, one thing, Bryce, in our remaining time, I mean, I think that one of the silver linings of this experience might be, you know, you mentioned that. Before pandemic, we started kind of understanding the value of these non-cognitive skills, and and maybe trying to get closer to understanding how they are cultivated um, within schools. And I think just the understanding in, in in the community of of their importance will make them more salient when we're trying to assess the effects of the pandemic on our on our kids. You know, if we if we know that hey this thing is much more important then we're, we're, we're gonna study the effect, whether that means the effect is really bad or not, I don't know probably is, but at least we know to be looking there
1: yeah, and that's the key to remediation right yeah you know it's, it's like I said it's easy to say, oh well test scores are down yeah uh, the, the average student is you know six percentiles below where we expected them to be or mm-hmm. ten percentiles below where okay fine. Like, oh, look, oh, and on the test, it's these areas, right? Like, we can tell you what you math we need to remediate. Yeah. We can tell you uh, what reading skills are missing because we have highly developed maze of measuring, you know, and we also have teachers who are professionals. yes And we go to conferences and they'll be, yeah, okay, like, this is where they're struggling. Go do this, right? But we, you know... There More and more curriculums and report cards, have they try and include some sort of social-emotional skills, right? There's definitely being taught more in schools, right. but our ability to really assess the mechanisms, it's still very contentious, right? You know, even things like grit, which we hear a lot about, oh, yeah. are very contentious within the you know, academic community because mm-hmm. people are like, well, is it this, is it that? What, is you it other, a real you know, thing? You know? You know, and so we just don't – we know it's important, Right, we, we certainly know enough now to know that we've got to be tracking this, figuring out how to measure it, and figuring out how to remediate any losses that we've had.
0: Which means that more and more scholars will dedicate their careers to it. There are career rewards to being a scholar in that space. I mean, if you're studying something that nobody thinks is legit, nobody recognizes... You know, as a doctoral student or as anybody doing research, you're you're not going to go that route because you know there's no rewards to it. Yeah, no, this is a massive change because this is what I wanted to study as a graduate student
1: yeah. 20 years ago. And, I mean, I went ahead and did it anyway, but people, every time I went and talked to my advisor about my latest yeah, thing, he idea, idea. was like, well, what are you exactly are you doing? You know, I mean, he's in the same field as me, and I was kind of, I could link it back. But it was a vague concept and it wasn't really clear what, you know, and that was, you know, honestly, I spent probably half a year in graduate school just trying to figure out what we were trying to talk about because everybody's talking past each other and all this kind of stuff. You're
0: ahead of your time as usual.
1: (laughs) Not usual, but, uh, (laughs) but like, you know, it's, it's definitely, you're right that it will get resources and hopefully we will get better at it. And, you know, that's all that we can really hope for. Because look, we, COVID has already happened, right? that, That cat's out of the bag. So all we can really hope to do is that, use it as an opportunity to learn about key things about how the world works and hopefully figure out ways that we can identify and remediate any adverse effects so that we're not living with the effects of COVID forever.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to end it, Bryce. This conversation about inequality will be a constant thread in incentives and instincts. I think it's largely the motivation behind the series, and it's just wonderful to – Just share this time with you and hear your expertise on this topic. Thanks for being with us today, Bryce. Thanks for having me as always. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business, with additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. A.J. Williams is our producer, BTO Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, editing by Nick Mott, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.